Hey guys, welcome to episode 121 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we hope all is well with you and you're ready for another super intense story. First, we just want to say thank you for all of the feedback and opinions on the Bain family murder episode. I just still can't get it off my mind. Like I'm thinking about it all the time. On the way to work, I'm like driving like, what happened? Who did it? You know? I still can't get it. You just can't get over the hump. I know. I, I feel the same way. I'm like, I, I'm I'm battling with myself of who it was, but I don't know. I don't I, think I we'll think ever we came, know. Yeah, I know. And, you know. You came close. Best conclusion you can, right? Yeah, seriously. And we also were really excited to bring you a case from New Zealand, and we're happy that so many people from New Zealand were happy that we did it. And they said that we did a, a, a great job, so. It's the best compliment you can get. You yeah. Know? When someone from the country that you did a story on says you did it right, you're like, okay, I feel good now. Hey, we never claim that we're experts. We're from a little town in Jersey. I mean, we're really not that worldly. So no, we are. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> when you guys say, oh, uh, you covered this. Oh, it was great. We're like, oh, wow. Okay. At least we kind of nailed it. It makes me feel better. It makes it me feel a little bit better. Makes me worldly through the eyes of true crime. True crime. But today we are back in the United States. And we're going back in time to the 1960s. Okay. But before we get into it all, I want to thank you all for your shares, your reviews, and your support on Patreon. At the end of the episode, we will be thanking our new patrons and hopefully not mispronouncing your names. We love you and please let us know if we say anything wrong. But without any further ado, are you ready, John? Yeah, let's do it. Since the founding of the United States, there has actually been many times that have tried the fortitude and resilience of its men's souls. But rarely has the convergence of several of these events occurred at one time. But it did in Gaffney, South Carolina, in 1968. It was a perfect storm, and the people of Gaffney were tested. I usually start out this podcast by saying the town we're going to be discussing today is a small town. And don't get me wrong, Gaffney was that. It was a small town where everyone knew each other. But in the 1960s, Gaffney was actually two small towns, as segregation was ironically alive and well in the Bible Belt of America, despite the passing of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The resistance to desegregation in schools was powerful and violent in South Carolina. But remember, I said, convergence of adversities. Americans were also dealing with the increasing involvement in Vietnam. In fact, just one month before our case began, the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong forces launched an attack on South Vietnam. History would remember this as the Tet Offensive. Although these attacks were eventually repelled, there was a heavy American loss. But American lives were not the only thing lost during the offensive. American civilian confidence and support was also lost. And for the first time, Americans began to question the intentions of the powers that be. In fact, 1968 was the deadliest year of the war. Just shy of 17,000 boys and men were killed while Americans watched their living room war. So imagine, a war raged on, both at home and abroad, for the people of South Carolina. 
The fear and hate and anger must have been as thick around them as the humidity in the summer. But then, in February of 1968, the people of Gaffney, South Carolina found out they had a serial killer on their hands. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Bill Gibbons was the editor of the Gaffney Ledger. On the morning of February 8th, he sat at his desk at the paper's office building located at 415 North Limestone Street, when a phone call came in. The voice on the other line was even-keeled and unassuming. He calmly told Gibbons that he was going to want to take notes. He had something very important to share with him. Gibbons reported the heartbreaking news of the 60s with intelligence and subjectivity. He took his job very seriously, but he was also a very self-aware man. He knew he was the editor for a local paper, and with that comes many prank phone calls. That week alone, they had a few kids call about something that turned out to be a joke. And at first, that was what he thought this phone call was. But he was wrong. Go ahead, he said with a pen in his hand over a piece of paper. And the voice told him, no, you need to get three separate pieces of paper and take notes the way I want you to. So he got three separate pieces of paper and told the man to go ahead. He was instructed to number the papers one, two, and three. On the first piece of paper, he was to write the name Nancy Christine, Chain Gang Road, off of a dirt road, a quarter mile into the woods, towards I-85, a pile of brush. On the second page, he was to write Nancy Carol Paris, downstream from the Ford Road Bridge, in the water on the downhill side. You'll find the body. Gibbon stopped there and asked the caller what he meant about saying, you'll find the body. He was told, that's where you will find the bodies, Mr. Gibbons. Then on the third piece of paper, he was instructed to write down that the caller had actually been the one who was responsible for the murder of Annie Louise Deadman last year. I left her on Jerusalem Road, he said. I know another man is in jail for what I did to her. He asked the caller what this all meant, but the caller only told him to make sure that the sheriff's department knew what was happening first, to bring the sheriff. And then the caller hung up. That must be the most creepiest phone call to ever receive. Like you're on the phone with a serial killer and he's giving you directions to bodies. Yeah. Well, I think at this point he's like, is this real? Like, I think he's still doubting that it's real because he doesn't want it to be real. But yeah, you know what? That's terrifying. You, know what? you bring up a good point because this was in the 60s. Yeah, 1968. So like in the 60s, it's like, I feel like serial killers and just murderers we view it so different now. Correct. So we have that kind of like, oh my God, like you're in contact with a killer right now who's telling you where bodies are. Where back then it's like, all right, kid, hang up the phone. Like, are you, you know, you're not right. serious. <laughs> so it's so different. We didn't know about like the psychology yeah. and stuff like that. And this is even before, you know, like 
the coining of the term serial killer. I also think that it's very weird because when you think about the 1960s, like I talked about in the intro, like you're talking about the violent civil rights movement that was taking place and the Vietnam War. And these were such violent times in American history, but still like society had this bizarre innocence about them that they're almost like, no, this can't be true. Yeah, it's like weirdly carried over from the 50s where everything was like a leave it to beaver, like weird, a perfect life. Yeah. You know what? Um, also, I think this is interesting if we touch upon this. what's What a perfect time to be a serial killer, right? With everything going on, you're not going to be on the on the first page of the newspaper. You Between the civil rights, everything that's happening with the civil rights movement, um, the war that mm-hmm. we're going through in Vietnam. Yeah. Like, you're not going to really, like, there are so much, um, I, I don't know what I'm looking for. Like, there's so much focus on all those things. There's just not enough coverage. Right, so America's you just get away dis- with it. America's distracted. Yeah, extremely distracted. Now, that would make sense if you were a killer who wanted to evade police. But this man is seeking out the media and the police, which is very interesting. Almost like he's is like, like he's trying to draw attention to the murders and not what's taking place out in the real world. Well, I think that there are people that don't want to get caught. And then there are people that love the attention and do it for that purpose. Like that's a part of the psychopathy of the killer himself is if he wants people to know what he's doing. He doesn't want other people taking credit for his work, which obviously seems to be the catalyst of the phone call because he is pretty adamant that he's upset that someone else is in jail for something that he did. Yeah. It's so uh, it's intriguing. The, mind game slash chess game that we're playing it's it's crazy yes and this is only going to continue so bill gibbons really thought that this was just someone messing with him because they weren't giving him any real information it was kind of even the instructions were really vague and kind of choppy but anyway he decided that he really should go to the sheriff with it and his interest was piqued when the man had mentioned a body Now, Bill Gibbons did go to the sheriff's office several times a week. He was a face that they knew well. Gibbons was always well-received at the office, and all of the deputies and various law enforcement personnel had always felt comfortable giving him a quote. But on that day, Bill didn't have questions to ask. He had information to give. He went in and spoke directly with the sheriff and showed him the notes that the anonymous caller had given him. Gibbons told him that he'd received prank calls earlier, but this is something that he had a really bad feeling about. The sheriff, a handful of deputies, and Bill Gibbons went to the closer of the two locations, Ford Bridge Road. They parked close to the bridge and walked over to it. With bated breath, the men all leaned over to look below the bridge, where the caller said a body would be positioned. They prayed that this really was a joke, but it was not. Below them lay the nude body of a woman, her legs slightly parted and her hair covering her face. The coroner was called to the scene 
and a deputy was sent back to the station to retrieve the camera that they always use to take pictures of the crime scene. See, so now you know for a fact that, that person that you spoke to on the phone with, he either is the killer or it's someone that knows or, I don't know, you know, like, or knows. Wants to be a part of yeah, it. Yeah, something. So now you know it has to be legitimate. I mean, what are the odds of that? Right. And, you know, most likely it's leaning towards it definitely being the killer because he's saying someone's in jail for what I did. Right. So at this point, it is also confirmed that the woman who um, was named by the note that the caller gave, that name matches a woman that had gone missing the day before. Okay. So they can confirm that this woman's name is Nancy Paris and that she had gone missing the day before. Everyone was shaken by what they were looking at. No one more than Bill Gibbons, though. He was not used to seeing a dead body, and this meant that he had most likely spoken to the man responsible for this woman's murder. Both Gibbons and the sheriff knew that they weren't done yet. There had been a second body that he had also claimed. So they made their way out to Chain Gang Road, with more deputies following closely behind, as the others stayed back and secured the first crime scene. Chain Gang Road was a lover's lane of sorts for the people of Gaffney, so it was remote but well-traveled. The directions that the caller gave were followed. They turned off of the dirt road and traveled a quarter mile in. That was when Gibbons, the sheriff, and all of the deputies got out of the cars to search for the girl that he said was named Nancy Christine. At this point, they needed more people to search, and they didn't have a second camera. So they asked some of the deputies to leave and go to the newspaper um, office and ask other searchers to return and also bring a camera with them to Chain Gang Road. You have to remember, this: there's no cell phones. You can't just easily call in something else. And, you know, the sheriff's office really did only have one camera. I mean, not to be disrespectful <laughs> to, like, people that lived there in the 60s. But, like, you know, even a, I feel like a camera was even a big deal. No, it totally was. You know, having a camera on hand was not heard of. And for a, you know, sheriff's department, that was all they were afforded was the price of one camera. That's crazy. Because they didn't really have murders to investigate. So over the cover of the Spanish moss, the men searched for the pile of brush that the man mentioned to Gibbons in the phone call. The tensions were high. Because the first body had been found, the men knew it was a matter of time until they found the second. And finally, someone called out, I found her. A deputy had found a foot stuck out from beneath some underbrush. She, like the first woman, was naked. It appeared as if she had been there for at least one week. Someone was sent to tell the coroner that they had another body and another crime scene, as the newspaper photographer took pictures of the scene for the sheriff's department. But this body was not that of a woman. She was younger than the other victim. And then it clicked for the sheriff and his deputies. This was the body of Tina Reinhardt. 
The 14-year-old girl had been reported missing by her mother over a week ago. The connection had not been made right away because she was reported missing as Tina, because that's what everyone called her. But the man on the phone had used the girl's full name, Nancy Christine. That's interesting. I want to I want to maybe say something. I could be wrong, but um, I think it's interesting that the killer calls up the newspaper office, right? Speaks to the guy. And he says that the guy that's in prison for this murder is not the guy that did it. It's me. Well, just the one victim. Right. But what do I have, what do I get this feeling that the reason for the phone call, the reason for saying that, and the reason why now there's two dead bodies, I think it's a retaliation kind of thing where you, this person is taking credit for what I did. Let me show you. I think it's very interesting to call up, you know, to call up and be like, he didn't do it. I did it, you know, and then uh, this is how you get to these bodies. You know what I mean? Okay. okay. We've seen crazier things. We, You know what? We have. So when we step back to take a look at the facts and the evidence, it's all very troubling. Both Nancy Paris, who was 20 years old, and Tina Reinhardt, who was 14, had been raped and strangled to death. They had been strangled with a thin object and not a person's hands. The Emmy knew this because of the bluish marks that were about the width of a belt on the front and sides of their necks. Nancy had been tortured by her killer as she had cigarette burns in her back. There had been an attempt by the killer to hide Tina's body as she was buried in a thin layer of brush. Whereas Nancy Paris had been out on full display in a commonly traveled part of town. If the phone call never came in, Nancy's body was bound to have been found by nightfall. However, Tina's was a different story. She might not have been found for a while. So he was definitely getting more brazen. But there was a third body the mysterious caller had taken credit for. Annie Lucille Dedmond. Now, the sheriff did not know too much information about that, but that was because his jurisdiction lie within Cherokee County. Jerusalem Road, which the man referred to in the call, was in the neighboring county of Union. So he called the department that headed the investigation there. The sheriff spoke eventually to the lead investigator of the Dedman case. He said that 32-year-old Annie Dedman had been found nude in the middle of a secluded road. She had been raped and strangled to death. The night before she was murdered, she had been out drinking with her husband, Roger, in Gaffney. Now, Gaffney is very close to, like, the border of Union County. The couple was enjoying some time out together, as they had a one-year-old son at home. The two were very intoxicated and got into a fight. According to Roger Dedmond, he said that he and his wife reconciled, but he went into a restaurant to buy them donuts and coffee before heading home. However, when he came out, she was not waiting for him any longer. So he reported her missing. The next morning on May 20th, 1967, she was found on Jerusalem Road. The police liked Roger Dedman for it right away. He was interrogated for two days, straight. The police claimed he confessed. He claimed he did not. But whichever was true, a jury believed him to be guilty of manslaughter. 
he was sentenced to 18 years in prison. And at that point, he had already been in prison for six months. That's crazy. Yeah. What I find in- insane is that the husband went in for coffee and donuts, and then he came back out and she was gone. She was gone. Which which would indicate to me that maybe they were being watched and followed. Maybe. And then this person, whoever it is, waited for him to go inside. Yes. That's so scary. <laughs> That's terrifying. Oh, my God. All right. Well, the sheriff of Cherokee County definitely had something to share with the investigators from Union. He said, you guys might have the wrong man because they just found two girls murdered the same exact way as Deadmond had been. And they actually had an anonymous caller telling them that he had been the one to commit the crime and another man was in prison for it. This is interesting. Okay, so maybe I was wrong. Like maybe maybe the ki- the person on the called is the killer and is pissed that this guy is in prison for what he has done. And that's why we're in the situation that we're in now where where we're finding bodies like this. Like maybe the fact that another man was put away for his crime escalated his killing sprees yeah and that he's seeking he's seeking credit because he thinks okay i i'm the one that's going out here and finding these victims and i'm the one strangling them i want the credit that guy didn't do it yes we do know that some killers definitely thrive off of the attention that they receive and if someone else is receiving that attention that does tend to be a trigger for them and also the intensity is getting a little i feel like it's getting worse yes i i would agree with that So both counties would work together to determine if Dedmond had been murdered by someone other than her husband. And now if this is true, it meant the killer was getting more brazen as he got closer to Gaffney. And that phone call to Bill Gibbons was made to let the town know he had arrived. Now that night, the night of February 8th, it's actually like a tremendous day in American history. Um... So that night should have been a busy one for Bill Gibbons. Much had gone on in his state and the country that day. Robert F. Kennedy, who was at the time the senator for New York, made an attack on President Johnson that day by saying to the president that it's time for the truth, time to drop the mask of official illusion regarding what was going on in Vietnam. And, you know, just as a side note, this is four months before RFK would be assassinated because he gets assassinated in June of 68. Interesting. Yeah. And even closer to home in South Carolina at South Carolina State University, which was only two hours away from Gaffney, what would later become known as the Orangeburg Massacre occurred on the very same day. So same day they're getting a call about the serial killer from a serial killer. This massacre takes place two hours away. And um, what that was, was when highway patrolmen opened fire on around 200 unarmed black student protesters. And three were killed and 28 were wounded. And the reason for this is that even though, like, the Civil Rights Act had been passed, which is supposed to supersede the state laws about segregation, South Carolina was going out of its way to kind of make all of these laws that created segregation without coming out and saying that it was creating segregation. So that's what the students were protesting. There were certain um, facilities that were remaining to be segregated, even though they weren't supposed to. Like, 
the Gaffney schools only got desegregated in 1968 as well. So the town was also going through that chaos. South Carolina was kind of the, the last to, to follow suit. I don't want to say the last because many other southern states did it as well. They held on to segregation for as long as humanly possible. And this Orangeburg massacre occurred because students were protesting that. I think we failed to realize how crazy the, the 60s were. The, I mean, it was insane. Tumultuous, to say the least. I mean, if you really think about I mean, a lot of the things we're talking about here, I mean, it's pretty barbaric. And to think that that was the late 60s, it does. I mean, it, I mean, we're 2022 now, but it doesn't seem like it was that long ago. So I feel like sometimes we forget how close to home it truly is. Yeah. So two major events in U.S. history had just occurred. And if it were any other day, Gibbons would have been editing stories and tapping away on his typewriter. But he just couldn't. He couldn't stop thinking about the man on the other line of the phone and how true terror had come to his hometown. And I know for us, the true crime community, we immediately think, oh, this is just like Zodiac or countless other serial killers who we've heard or read about. But this was February 8th, 1968. The Zodiac killer would not send out his first three letters to various newspapers until August 1st, 1969. So it would be another year and a half before that happened. We've never had, like, it wasn't like Gibbons or the Cherokee Sheriff's Department had anything to go on because this had never happened before where a serial killer is going to get in contact with the media like this. So they're in uncharted territory, and it's, it's a little bit scary. And kind of like what I spoke to you guys about before with the innocence that the country felt, I feel like there's a clear line that was drawn um, because the Tate-LaBianca murders or the Manson murders, however you want to, you know, talk about them, they wouldn't happen or begin, I should say, until the first, like a week after the Zodiac's first letters. This is before any of the chaos. And I just feel like the Tate-LaBianca murders are so important as it relates to true crime and American innocence and murders within the United States. Because before those murders, I felt like Americans thought violent murders could never happen. There was an innocence that was completely shattered by them. Because here are these high-profile murders where an elderly couple and a pregnant woman were slaughtered in their homes in this senseless act of violence, you know, for, for nothing, you know, we could say for nothing. So it was like Americans were like, oh, my God, so there's a serial killer, Zodiac, and he's contacting the media. Oh, my God, there's the shattering of innocence with the Tate-LaBianca murders. So post those two events taking place, America's reaction to true crime and murder and serial killers was kind of like, oh my God, and it was sensationalized. Whereas what we're talking about is around the same thing, but before it all happened. So I feel like Gaffney, South Carolina was paralyzed by this because they had nothing to compare it to. I mean, yeah, I mean, imagine you're in town and you're kind of looking over your shoulder and looking at every single familiar face saying, could this person be someone that I know, you know? Yeah. I mean, this is, there's no BAU unit in the FBI. The term serial killer hadn't even been coined yet. That's not until the mid-70s. So the Cherokee Sheriff's Department and Bill Gibbons 
and the town of Gaffney were, I mean, there's no other, I'll repeat it again, uncharted territory. There's I mean, no yeah. other words for it. There's no other support but themselves. And they're like, what the hell? Yeah, what do we do? And now the next day when word about what happened got out, the town was devastated by the loss of two beautiful girls. And just as the caller intended, they were scared that they or someone they loved would be next. Now, let's add Annie to that list of victims that the killer could potentially have had. They all had a lot in common. They were pretty white women, girls, that were taken at moments of opportunity. Annie had been drinking and was waiting for her husband, presumably after a fight. So she was like kind of in a moment of vulnerability. Nancy Paris was taking her dog for a walk down an isolated rural road. And Tina Reinhardt had been walking to visit her mother at work when she disappeared. So it seems like this killer grabbed women or girls because Tina Reinhardt's only 14, but because he had the opportunity to do so. Like, I don't, I think these are all crimes of opportunity versus like he was stalking his victims. Like he saw his victims in compromising situations and he took advantage of it. His victims were also getting younger and younger, which is troublesome. So the sheriff told the people of Gaffney to watch out and to be on the lookout for strange cars and to not go walking on your own, especially if you're walking down an isolated road surrounded by woods. The funerals for the victims were heartbreaking and attended by many in the town. The community really seemed to rally around the Reinhardt family because Tina had been the family's youngest daughter and her mother was completely devastated. The sheriff's department made the right call here, though. They knew they were out of their league, so they reached out for help immediately, and the South Carolina state investigators came to assist with the case. Not only did they have more resources and manpower than Cherokee County, but they also had experience in dealing with, I mean, in all reality, not nothing like this, but at least murder cases. Like, this is before... When there was a serial killer, like now the FBI gets involved. This was before that. Uh, That's what I'm saying. Back then, it's way harder to kind of gauge what to do. The amount of technology they have is very limited. Procedural stuff, very limited. It's really hard. Like how there's not that much testing of evidence that can get done. Right, exactly. What are you going to do, dust for fingerprints? Yeah, it's old-fashioned police work. That's it. That and eyewitness uh, testimony. Right. That's not a lot to go on. So this is actually good, too, though, that the state um, investigators are coming in because they're doing so with clear eyes. There's no small town lens blocking them from seeing potential suspects. You know, like how a sheriff's would be like, oh, that's just bob you know he does what he does like these state investigators are going to look at everyone because they have no emotional attachments to anyone so it's good they're they're objective that's true in their experience the investigators told the sheriff that usually the killer is someone that the victim knew so maybe there might be one person that the two girls had known because now they're working outside the realm of annie deadman being lumped in with the other two victims Because in reality, someone was in jail for her murder. So first, they wanted to focus on the two victims 
find their killer, and then maybe connect that person to the murder of Annie Dedmond. So that's kind of the, the trail that they're going on. So the first thing they wanted to find out, did these two girls share someone in common who could have done this? To find this out, they went to conduct interviews with the girl's family again. This was something that was very difficult for Tina's mother, who had already relived these events several times with the Cherokee Sheriff's Department. She was asked if Tina had a boyfriend or any male that she talked to, and her mother and sister confirmed that that had not been the case. Her sister stated the last time she saw Tina had been the day she went missing. It was 5.30 a.m., and Tina was going to go visit their mother at work, which is very early. It is really early. (laughs) But she never showed up. And after a few more questions, it was clear that no one really stood out to investigators as someone who could have potentially been a suspect in the case of Tina Reinhart. But now they wanted to speak to those who knew Nancy Paris. I mean, is it outside the realm of possibility that even in a small town like this, it could be someone that doesn't live in the town or even in the county? Well, I think that's something they hoped because they didn't want to know that there was a monster among them. But I also think that they're taking the whole the killer could have known them a little bit too literally because truly in a small town, everyone knows everyone. So even though you might not be a part of someone's life, someone still knows everything about you. That is true. So next they want to speak to the husband of Nancy Paris, Monroe. Now, the state investigators wanted to talk to Monroe because they had heard through some of the deputies at the station that Monroe and his wife had been known to get into a lot of fights. However, when they went to inform Monroe that his wife, who he had reported missing the day before she was found, had been murdered, they didn't question him further because they wanted to be respectful. The state investigators were like, what? And I think that's why it's so good they're there. Because, I mean, he, when someone's murdered, their significant other is considered to be the first suspect. So the fact that the deputies, out of respect, didn't want to question him was kind of like jaw-dropping to the state investigators. Yeah, I think no matter what time period we're talking about here, I think that the husband or boyfriend are always going to be the first suspect. It's the easy suspect just to check. It have, Sometimes it's it turns out to be nothing. Other times, you know, it leads somewhere. So... I, I, I think the fact that they wanted to be respectful, I get that. Small town, good vibes, I understand. But I would have I would have been like, hey, listen, I'm really sorry for your loss. And it was a difficult time for you. But we have some serious questions that we need to ask you. And that is exactly the way it should have gone. Yeah, it should have. Because the state investigators actually kind of really liked him as a suspect. The two fought all the time. And he had been the last person to see her alive. Because... You know, she went from for a walk, but she had left the house and he was home at the time. So when the investigators went to go speak to Monroe, um, he told them that he did fight with his wife, like every husband fights with their wife. And it was nothing outside the realm of a normal marriage. They were just young. They asked him to recall what had happened the last time he had seen his wife. He said that the two had gotten into an argument over something stupid and he had said some mean things to her, and she stormed out of the house. He followed after her, calling for her to come back in the house so they could talk. 
but Nancy had been adamant that she just wanted to get away. She told him no, and that she was going to be taking their dog, a poodle named Juniper, which is adorable, for a walk. He said that he knew that she needed space to cool down, and so did he, so he let her go. But he never saw her again. They asked if anyone could confirm this story, and he said actually the neighbors heard the whole thing because when once they had taken it outside, his neighbors had been outside on the porch. So they had seen kind of Nancy storming out and him telling her to come back in, but the two of them continuing fighting a little bit. All right, so gentlemen, what did we learn here today? If you <laughs> fight with your wife, which happens sometimes verbally, of course, I'm talking about, just remember... Try to solve it. Just end it. Just be like, I'm wrong. You're right. Come inside because I don't want you getting kidnapped and killed. Yeah, I don't want you to become just, a victim of I'm, a serial yeah, killer. I'm sorry. You're. I'm wrong. You're right. Let's go inside. Don't rage go grocery shopping. Just, yeah, don't do that. Just don't. <laughs> Which I have done before. You have. <laughs> you have. But that's okay. I mean, it happens. It does. It totally happens. But it's just, you know what? And that's what makes it so heartbreaking is that fights in a marriage or in a relationship are so normal and the fact that they had gotten into an argument and then she went off and that was the last time he talked to her like that must be so hard to to live with yeah and if he truly did not do this that's even worse because now right. you know you're you gotta be living with the fact that you had involvement in, a, in you know by fighting with her to have her leave oh, i know it's so rough right so like i said this is um this is a lesson guys a time Roman. of reflection for us all yes yeah so wanting to get the neighbor's um story before monroe could get to them um the investigators actually went immediately next door to the neighbors and a neighbor who lived directly next door to the Parises confirmed monroe's whole story Nancy had walked away with the dog and Monroe, clearly upset, walked back into the house and never left that whole night. We do know that the, the next time Monroe left the house was the following morning when he went to the police station to report his wife missing. Well, he did make a phone call that night to say she was missing, but they said if she doesn't come back in the morning, come into the police station. And that's when he did. So both Monroe and the neighbor stated that there was no one they could think of that would have wanted to hurt Nancy. So this was hard, and there was not one suspect in either of the victims' lives. And if we are to believe that Roger Dedmond killed his wife the same way these girls were murdered, it couldn't have been him because he was in prison. So there's zero suspects here. All right, so we're going to take a break here to talk about our sponsor of today's show. When law enforcement let the people of the town know that they had to be safe, they also encouraged them to call the sheriff's station if they could think of anything or anyone that had been suspicious. Well, that would prove to be chaotic, and probably is the worst thing you could say to a small town. The people of Gaffney grew paranoid, and a witch hunt of sorts began. People were accusing their neighbors, their family members, even their boyfriends and husbands of being, you know, this killer. And the sheriff's department and the state investigators only followed up on what seemed to be credible tips. But there hadn't been many. And in the meantime, the state police put a tap into the phone lines at the Gaffney Ledger 
just in case the caller reached out to Bill Gibbons again, which they assumed he would. After a few days of waiting and sifting through bad tips, a call came in that would produce the first lead in the case for investigators. A man called in to say that he thought he had seen the strangler place the body of Nancy Paris beneath the bridge on Ford Road Bridge. He was a white man of average height and build, maybe a little on the thin side, and he had been carrying the body of a woman. He said he had gotten out of a dark-colored sedan, but he couldn't tell what the make or model was. An investigator got on the phone with the man, and through his questioning, he asked him why he hadn't come forward sooner. It had been two days since the bodies had been discovered. The man evaded the question at first, but then finally admitted he was having an affair. He had been parked out by the bridge with his mistress, who was also married, and they were scared about coming forward because they didn't want their secret coming out. I mean, that's intense. Right? Like, you don't want to get busted in this small town. <laughs> you, know, you guys are doing the, you know, doing the dirty. You're not supposed to be doing that. And he, But here you are, though. You have evidence that could break open a case. Could you imagine? Like, someone's not coming forward because they don't want their small secret getting out, but it could solve a murder investigation? Wait, okay. Small? It's not small. Okay. It's definitely not a small secret. But if I was murdered, I would be like, um, hello, guys. Like, can you, like, explain what happened? Seriously. I would be pissed. My, my murder my murder goes unsolved because, you know, people Someone's are, having an affair. Right. Like, what are the chances? The the one witness. Like, like you said, it's 1968. The only thing that's going to solve this case is old-fashioned police worker eyewitnesses. And the eyewitness just happens to be hiding. Yeah. Like, they literally know that the guy's white, the guy's average height. He has they, a dark-colored sedan. Dark-colored car. That helps out a lot. Yeah. So now, you know, and I, I do get it. I It would ruin your lives, both of your lives, your family's lives, the children. Like, well, first of all, I'm going to say don't do that. And then I'm going to say I am at least happy that this man came forward despite his fears. And he has, you know, a lot to lose. Yes. So at so least he did that. The investigators agreed to keep his identity a secret because we still do not know his identity. If he would come in and make a statement. Okay. Well, that was nice of uh, investigators. I, I agree. That's good. They could have blown up his spot pretty bad. That's true. And I mean, like, it kind of, like, they're probably looking at him like, you know, dude, you knew information and you withheld it yeah so that's you know i'm surprised that they were like okay it's all anonymous just come in and tell us what you know i feel like it's also also 1968 so that kind of like led into okay let's like maintain the integrity of the family here yeah true so after this call no other leads came in state investigators began to get suspicious of bill gibbons really Mm-hmm. If this killer wanted people to know about him so badly, why had he not reached out again? Or had he maybe never called at all? Was Gibbons making this up? And was he actually the real killer? It kind of matched the description that the man at the bridge gave. I mean, that would be, I mean, mind blown at this point if that's, what ha- if that's what's yeah. going to happen. But I would want to know, I mean, did, does he own... A black sedan, right? Or have access to a black sedan. 
These are all very important questions, John. Yeah. Well, suspicion surrounding Bill intensified when he came into the sheriff's station on February 12th. The alleged killer had called again, but he didn't call at the Gaffney Ledger where the phone taps were. He called Gibbons on his house phone. Okay, now see, that could go either two ways now. That's either super sus that now this, the killer's calling him at his home residence and not where it's tapped. Or this person must have access to information to find out this guy's phone number. Yeah, well, I mean, it's 1968. Oh, that's right. He probably could just look through the yellow page book. Yes. Okay, never mind. So Gibbons had a paper bag with him, like when he had gotten the phone call. That was the only thing that was near enough that he could take notes on. So when he went into the sheriff's department, he was kind of like, I took notes on this paper bag. The first thing the man said to him was, we have to do something about the man down there serving my sentence. I did it. And then he gave information regarding the Deadman case that only the killer and the investigators that were looking into the crime would have known. He said she had on blue shoes and her husband had been driving a red Ford Falcon with the taillight out. The investigator interrupted Gibbons here because they said they just didn't get it. Why does the fact that Roger Deadman is in jail for this crime he committed bother him so much? Shouldn't he be happy about this? And Gibbons couldn't provide an answer to this question that investigators have. And we know now through the studying of, of these killers is that this is one of the kind of like this is the kind of man who wants the attention for the case. He doesn't want to evade police. If he wanted to evade police, he never would have called and he would have been happy that Deadmond was in jail for it. That's true. He also told Gibbons that Annie had trading stamps in her purse at the time and that she had been wearing an open bottom dress with no frills or coat. Gibbons had asked the man, do you want to talk about this face to face? You could give yourself in. And the man told him no, he would not do that. I'm a psycho, Mr. Gibbons, he said, and it's not going to happen. He went on to tell him that the police weren't smart enough to catch him and that there will be more deaths to come. He could count on it. And he hung up. I mean, that's it's incredible to get this sort of information and to be able to talk to a person like this. But it's also chilling oh yes but once again though now like you you know you're starting to bring focus now on the guy from the newspaper like it is a little bizarre that he now he look there's no there's nobody to corroborate his phone call at his house and now he's just kind of listing off all these things he wrote on a on a plastic bag or paper bag whatever it was um i don't know now i'm starting to get like I'm getting weirded out by the fact that he knows all this and he's the one that he's deciding to communicate through. Right. And no one else. It's a little troubling. And and he would know because he was told that they tapped the newspaper place. Right. So what better way to continue this to keep it going than to say, oh, he didn't call my office. He called my house. Right. Uh, I like this, though. I don't know where it's going to go, but I like it. So the investigators questioned Gibbons over and over again about the phone call. And he began to get the impression that they were trying to imply that maybe the phone calls weren't real. Gibbons was very upset and adamant that he was telling the truth. 
He said to them that he didn't want this. In addition to being unnerved, he was getting bizarre prank phone calls and his children were being harassed at school. He didn't want any of this, no matter how great the story. Now that led the investigators to their next point, the paper. Gibbons had told them that the next edition was set to go out the next day and that he was going to print the latest on the Gaffney Strangler, because that's what this man was called. The investigators told Gibbons not to. To them, it seemed like this man wanted Gibbons to print the story. And if they gave him what he wanted, he might not call again for a few days, just like last time. And that could lead to even more murders. So they asked Gibbons not to print in the paper about the phone call that had just happened. And Bill Gibbons told the police that he would do whatever they wanted. But the caller would make good on his promise. Because within hours of his second phone call to Bill Gibbons... In the early morning hours of February 13th, he would strike again. Right before 8 a.m., the Buxton family called the Cherokee Sheriff Station. They were hysterical. Their daughter, Gracie, had just seen her sister, Opal, get abducted by a man in a dark car. This seemed very similar to what happened to the other girls. Deputies and the sheriff rushed to the Buxton home. If they were going to try and get Opal back alive, they needed to act immediately. Gracie Buxton stated that she and her siblings had been walking to the bus stop. Their bus stop was on the main road, but to get there, they had to walk about half a mile up a dirt road to make it there. Their bus stop was on a main road, but they had to walk about half a mile up a dirt road to make it there. Opal had been about 50 yards ahead of her and she had made it to the main road before everyone else. She watched as the man parked, got out of the car, grabbed Opal. She tried to fight him, but he overpowered her. He tossed her into his trunk, and by the time Gracie reached the car, the man had already slammed the trunk shut and was driving away. That must be terrifying. For those girls to witness. Yeah, she that. was. Yeah, Gracie said she was running towards the car. And as she was running there, she was just watching it all happen. And by the time she got close enough to even touch the car, he was driving away. I can't even, words cannot even describe the panic that I would feel if that happened in front of me. Yeah. Oh my God. She described the man the same way the man at the bridge did thin, medium height and he was white. She told them that the car was very dark and that it might be a Chevy, but she couldn't be sure. Opal Diane Buxton was the first African-American victim of the Gaffney Strangler. When the police reported her disappearance to the town and again issued the same warning for the residents of Gaffney, no one in the two small towns felt safe now. I mean, honestly, how could you? The Cherokee Sheriff's Department, in conjunction with the state investigators, pleaded with the town to aid them in the search for Opal and for anyone to come forward with any information that might be helpful. And with that, a small miracle happened. For a fleeting moment in a small town, when the black and white residents of Gaffney, South Carolina, came together to find Opal. On like further reflection later on, they're going to say that at any other time in, like, history, 
if a black girl had gone missing, the white residents of the town would never help in the search for her. But the whole town showed up for Opal. And that was something that was so interesting for the town to go through because these tragedies were tying them together in a way that they, the two communities had never been tied together before. And they were searching for Opal because they needed to find her alive. I mean, yeah. I mean, at what point, I mean, as a community, do you just say, I mean, and I'm only talking about this time in history, not obviously not present, but what time do you just put aside any, like all the hatred and all the bulk, all the bullshit, your town's being attacked. Right. Like you need to come together there. You have no other choice. And you almost realize that it is all bullshit and that you do need to be together. Absolutely. Right. So everyone was determined to save the life of the 15-year-old girl and to catch the monster that had been terrorizing them. People searched the woods around the area where Opal went missing, and the sheriff's department organized a group of men to, in pairs, drive around the back roads of the town to see if they saw the black sedan parked near any of the wooded areas. They knew that he would drive his victims to secluded spots and rape and murder them. So their goal was to make no spot in Gaffney secluded. I mean, that's a pretty good call to make. I agree. So while two men were driving, and these were not two police officers, one was a professional golfer and the other a game warden, were driving up and down the back roads of the town in their assigned area, they spotted a man in the woods next to a dark Chevy sedan. He matched the description of the man they were looking for a white man in his 30s with slender build. As they were passing him, he was getting back into the driver's seat of his car. The road was tight, so they had to drive up ahead a little bit more where they were able to turn around. But at that point, the man in the dark sedan had already sped up and was driving away from the area. Now, this is a little bit of a tough spot to be in. They didn't have cell phones, obviously, but they didn't even have radios. So they had to make the choice to follow him and see where he ended up or possibly write down his license plate. Like at one point, the two men were like even thinking, do we just drive him off the road? I mean, yeah. See, this is the only bad thing about what they're doing is then it becomes like a weird vigilante bullshit. Yes. And it might. What if it's innocent? Yeah. What if the guy is not the guy you're looking for? But at the same time, what if it is and you miss an opportunity? Correct. So I, if I, if I was in that situation, I would write the phone number down and continue well, to the, follow. Well, the license plate. What did I say? Phone, phone number. Oh, my God. That's okay. I'm sorry. I meant I would follow the car, get the license plate, right. continue to follow unless I lost them or something. Well, that's exactly what they did. Yeah. They tried to get close to him so they could get his license plate. But every time they tried to inch up on him, he just went faster. Finally, he pulled into the driveway of a house, which is interesting. Is he giving away where he lives? Ooh. As the two men passed, they were able to slow down and write down his license plate, EG6911. They got back to the sheriff's station as quickly as they could. They recounted their story of where they had found the man and where he had driven to. The deputies and the sheriff immediately headed to the house where the vehicle had stopped. They also brought along the two men that could confirm if that was him. They also brought along the two men so they could confirm if the man they had seen was at the house. 
They pulled up to this house with as many cars as they could, sirens blaring, and they pounded on the door demanding whoever was inside to come out. Within a minute, a man came out of the house, but he was older and did not fit the physical description of the man that had taken Opal. The deputies asked the men that had chased the car if this was the guy they had seen, and they said no. This was somebody else. The man on the front steps, the owner of the home, was terrified. <laughs> Could you imagine? Yeah. They asked him if anyone had come to his house or pulled into his driveway before, and he said they had. He said a man pulled into his driveway in a dark car earlier, but he didn't know who they were because they never got out of the car and he had never seen the car before. It basically like this dark sedan pulled into his driveway and then left. So they thanked him and left. And it really was okay that he hadn't been at the house because after all, they had his license plate number so they can connect him to who, whoever he was. That's true. But law enforcement had a bigger concern. But law enforcement had a concern bigger than going after the car. They wanted to find Opal. The sheriff and all the other deputies that had arrived at the house, plus the two men, went back to the spot where they had originally seen the man in the car parked in the woods because they hoped to find Opal there. Like, he had to have been in that secluded area for a reason. I mean, that is true. The area in which they were brought was very isolated and heavy with brush. They searched until the sun went down, but found nothing. The next day, they would continue their search. Meanwhile, the state investigators took on the task of figuring out who the car belonged to and tailing him. The tag number came back as belonging to a man named Lee Roy Martin. Martin was known by some of the deputies back at the station, and they told the state investigators that Martin worked at the mill in town, and he sometimes drove as a taxi driver, like he drove a taxi part-time. Okay. Maybe he's using that. Maybe that's the car he's using. Maybe. He was married with three children and lived in town. They checked to see if Martin had a record. Remember, no computers, so they had to go through files. And they realized that the sheriff's department did have a file on him from when he was on probation years and years prior. He had been on probation after he was released for serving a sentence for the assault and attempted rape of a teenage girl 10 years prior when he was 20. See, now that's interesting. Yeah. Because that's kind of what's taking, well, not kind of, that is what's taking place on these victims. Right. You know, some habits don't die, you know? Well, no. The investigators made a choice here. They knew that Martin looked good for the murders. It made sense because of his history. Although they didn't know what sparked the killing spree, but they didn't want to go in and arrest him just yet. There was still hope that Opal was alive, especially because he had not called Gibbons and told him where to find her and because her body had not been found. If she was being kept alive by him, he would have to return to where he was keeping her, and then there would be no speculation. They would have him dead to rights. They also wanted to find her with him before arresting him because they were not confident that he would ever give up her location if he was arrested. So they watched him, waiting for him to make his first move. 
while, of course, the physical on-the-ground search continued by the people of Gaffney and the deputies of the county. The investigators would tail Martin in shifts so that he wouldn't catch on to them. He would drive a few blocks, and then the car following him would back off as another one took its place. Every so often, the car following him would change, but he doesn't seem to do anything interesting. He went to work. He went to the local cafe, where he actually made a comment about the serial killer just making news because there was none. While the tale and desperate search continued, the officers at the station made another discovery. In going through all of Martin's, um, like, time sheets, like, you know, he had to do the thing where he, like, stamped in and out of work, they found that during the time of the three murders, he hadn't been at work. Oh, so he didn't clock in? Yes. Okay. So it, it in the records from the mill, it says that um, for one of the murders, he changed his shift last minute. For another, he called out, and the other, he just didn't show up. And this meant that, like, once they did catch him, he had no alibi. He couldn't say, oh, I was at work. Yeah, that's true. Well, because if you think about it, a time card clocking in and clocking out would would be your alibi, like you said. But the fact that he just wouldn't show, <laughs> I don't think he's doing himself any favors by doing that. Yeah, I don't think he's as smart as he thinks he is. He also had been doing very strange things. Like shortly after the tale on him began, he watched his car at night in February. Something that struck the investigators as odd. They wanted to find Opal, which was why they were waiting to see if he would take them to her. But it killed them because they also had to sit and watch him destroy evidence in front of them. Yeah, that really must be hard to just see that happening. Yeah, it's like, well, there goes our case washing around away in the driveway. Yeah. But unfortunately, the story would take another tragic turn. While searching the heavily wooded areas where two men had originally seen Leroy Martin, the body of Opal Buxton was found. She, like the other victims, was nude. She had been raped and strangled as well. Law enforcement officers knew where Martin was, because they had the tail on him 24-7. He was working at the mill when they arrested him. They made a big show of bringing a lot of vehicles with their sirens on, driving up to the mill, and then walking in and arresting Martin as they loudly announced the crimes that he was being charged with. They wanted everyone to know what an animal he was. His co-workers looked on, some in shock, and some not too surprised. One of the receptionists almost passed out, because the day before, she had declined a ride home from a very persistent Leroy Martin. She probably was going to be victim number five. That would probably make anybody's heart stop. Uh, yeah. To think that I, you know, I could be the next victim if I chose to get in that car. Yeah, that's terrifying. Yeah. So after his arrest, Leroy Martin sat in the back seat of the police vehicle of the state investigators. These men, ahead of their time tried to deal with Martin in a way that would best benefit them. From the back seat, he repeated that he had not killed anyone, that they had the wrong man. And honestly, the investigators, if they hadn't been there to see everything go down 
like everything unfold the past 10 days as they did, they probably would have been inclined to believe him because he just didn't seem like the type. Like most serial killers don't. But they had been there those past 10 days and they knew without a doubt that this was their guy. But they didn't have much in the way of evidence. They knew that he had just washed his car. So there was nothing physical in the car that they were going to find. If they were going to get him, they needed a confession from him. So they used a bit of reverse psychology on Martin. They knew based on him calling Bill Gibbons, also poor Bill Gibbons, because he did get these phone calls. Yeah, now it's like, okay, (laughs) that would have been amazing, though. Oh, my God, what what a twist on a case. I wonder if that's ever happened. If it was him. Oh, my God. If it was actually Bill Gibbons. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so they knew based on him calling Bill Gibbons and him being adamant that another man didn't receive credit for a murder that he committed, that really everything that Leroy Martin wanted was attention. So they didn't give it to him. No matter what he said in the backseat, they didn't respond. They were not taking him to the sheriff's station and said they were driving him away from Gaffney. So he wasn't going to have this grand moment where he got paraded into the jail for all of the residents of Gaffney to see. And as this unfolded, he became more and more agitated with the investigators. Until finally, Martin, the man who was supposed to be smarter than the police, could no longer help himself. He'd been outsmarted. And he said, the first one was the easiest And the hardest. This, of course, got the attention of investigators and they gave him the attention he wanted so he would continue giving them more information. And he went on to recount the murder of Annie Dedmond as like somebody would the proudest moment in their life. Like he was proud of what he did. It was they said it was very disgusting. I mean, yeah, because it's just, it's not normal behavior to go out and murder people. No, I would say no. No. (laughs) But Leroy Martin didn't stop there. He also revealed many disturbing details regarding his crimes. Now, just as a warning, I'm going to be discussing violence against animals. So if that is something you don't want to hear, you can fast forward 30 seconds. He admitted that when he first met Nancy and her dog, that the dog had gotten away. So he told the woman that he would go after the poodle for her. And he did. He found the dog and he killed it. He came back and told Nancy that the dog got away. And that must have been how he convinced her to get in the car to look for the dog. He also admitted that Tina had been killed immediately and over the week that her body had been in the woods, that he went back to her body six or seven times where um, each time he would sexually molest the corpse. Oh, man. So this guy's twisted. Once the identity of the killer was revealed, another disturbing detail was given by the mother of Tina Reinhardt. Leroy Martin had attended her daughter's funeral and wake. Are you serious? Yes. He had actually stayed there for quite some time and spoke to her several times. At one point saying 
that it was such a shame what had happened and how beautiful Tina had been. And if what he said, you know, is correct, he had been doing horrible things. (laughs) What a joke. (laughs) Yeah. So what is fascinating here is everything that we just talked about is serial killer 101, right? Martin checks off all of the stereotypical FBI, BAU serial killer traits that we hear about all the time. He has a normal, unassuming life. He escalated his crimes. His victimology changed based on restraints and desperation. He revisited the bodies for sexual pleasure and to relive his crimes. He inserted himself into the investigation and attended the victim's funerals. He also contacted the media because he wanted to control the narrative and get attention. This is the MO of many future serial killers. But in 1968, this had never happened before. And those details that we have as a society, the details that we've been desensitized to, were appalling. Because this is the first time anyone had heard about it. I'm sure they used this guy's case in future cases. Oh, 100%. Yeah. He would be the basis for the profile of murders and serial killers moving forward. I mean, Leroy Martin is the textbook case. And, you know, unfortunately, at the expense of, you know, four beautiful women. Yeah. That could have had phenomenal futures. Martin was a sexual deviant serial killer who practiced necrophilia. We know now that what happened in February of 1968 was an extreme escalation mode that usually happens at the end of a serial killer's crime spree. So it does make me think that there might be other victims out there, whether alive or murdered. You know, like, like you know how he went to jail when he was 20 for, like, the attempted rape of a girl? I'm sure he had made these attempts several times, and that was just the one victim that came forward. I mean, that's true. Plus, you have to think, look what we know in this case of what he did. I'm sure that he, like you said, did other other attempts on on women and stuff just to kind of perfect his, his way of doing things. Correct. The only thing that makes me think that there might not be other victims that died is the fact that he probably would have taken credit for them. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. I think that there are other victims out there that he sexually assaulted. Maybe he just escalated. I think so, too. I think that what he was doing wasn't enough any longer Yeah. for him. And then he escalated once he realized that he liked what he did. He continued. So sick. Yeah. We also know that sometimes these actions are committed as a result of stressors in the killer's life. But we know little about... Leroy Martin's family life and what had been happening at the time. Leroy Martin was convicted of four counts of first-degree murder and was sentenced to four life sentences. But in 1972, while being housed at the Central Corrections Institute in Columbia, South Carolina, he was stabbed to death by a fellow inmate. Which, listen, I don't want... This man is terrible, and I don't feel bad for him for one second. But just years later, the Behavioral Science Unit is going to be created in the FBI. And they do use Leroy Martin 
as one of the baselines of like things that serial killers do and ways to catch them. Like, okay, if a body is found, he's going to revisit the site. So watch the site. Um, at At victims funerals or at the searches for victims, watch because he might be in the crowd. These are all things that Leroy Martin did. So think about how much more they could have learned from him if he was alive and they could have used him while they were questioning all the serial killers that were in prison at the time. That's true. So it was a missed opportunity that they were never able to interview him because we don't know about what was going on in his personal life. And we know very, very little about his life growing up. We do know that um, he was raised by his mother and his stepfather who was abusive. But other than that, we don't really know anything else. And, it could have been beneficial in catching future killers. And which we know now, I mean, the childhood has a lot to do with it. The upbringing really determines if, you know, if there's a place for them being a, a serial killer. Yeah, it's it's definitely important. And we don't know what kind of triggers he had in his life. Like, there seems to be no reason for him to... He was arrested when he was 20 and then when he's 30, he just starts killing people. Something happened in between, and we need to know what. You know, it could have been the stressors just from, like you said, stressors. could have been just from having a family, trying to keep it a secret. Trying to keep normal life. Trying to keep, yeah, and being married and having kids and going to work. Yeah, and I think those stressors, and oh, and that's what I want to say. That's how Annie... Deadman passed away. That's how he got her. He was driving his taxi, saw her waiting on the street. That makes sense now. And and how got she her was in there the one minute and gone the next. Right. Yeah. And why did things escalate so much with her? And then once it did, he must have realized. Unfortunately, as gross as this sounds, I like that that happened. I'm gonna do it again. Yeah. Ugh. It's really crazy. It is. So on a brighter note, let's end it a little bit better. Um, Roger Dedmond was exonerated for the murder of his wife. And after serving 10 months behind bars, he was able to return home to his two-year-old son and actually grieve the loss of his wife. That's really sad. I mean, it's I'm glad he's out of prison, but it's still sad that he has to deal with you know, everything that has happened. Yeah. And I don't think those things will ever leave, you know, ever leave him. You know, no, and neither will it for the other families that like because you have to think about it. They were all so unbelievably affected by this, like the sister and mother of Tina Reinhardt were so guilty because they let her go and walk by herself to go to her mother's job. And Monroe Paris got into a fight with his with his wife before she left. And, you know, poor Gracie Buxton saw her sister get kidnapped and knew ends up knowing what her fate was after that it's traumatizing yeah after like a major event like this and after the murders take place like this there's so many like little offshoots of trauma that splinter off right and it's it's so interesting because it's i know it's like the victims obviously that get murdered it's it's horrible and that's what we cover but 
it's another thing too of all the rip like the ripples that it has the splintering that goes on from the families even yeah. the people that are investigating that can never forget about a crime scene or or something specific like that can never leave those people right so it does have really large effects when it happens right and bill gibbons in this case oh my god that poor guy wanted none of this yeah think about that so that is the story of the Gaffney Strangler. Pretty good case. It's it's an intense one. And it's not one that's covered too too often. So I'm glad that we could bring it to light and kind of talk about how crazy it is and, and like retrospect because it's before any known serial killer. Like those really. big heavy hitters. <laughs> yes, exactly. All right. But before we go, we just do want to thank our newest patreon supporters we thank you so much we hope you're enjoying all of the episodes and that's shanna marchio lisa martin ashley smith erica adler samantha dune cz berlaga winter DeJarnet, caroline connor Teresa, darcy dockery anthony arsini Jacqueline Guzman, Stephanie Hansen, Lucy, Monica, Scarlett Phillips, and Louise Brennan. Thank you guys so much for joining Patreon, and we hope you're enjoying it. All right, guys, we will see you in two weeks, but if you are on Patreon, we'll see you next week. Bye. Take care, guys.